It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Friday morning, the 2nd of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. I join you in this home of Irish democracy. And I do not feel like I have travelled to the edge of our union. Because, while that may be true geographically, Ireland lies at the heart of Europe in every other way. The President of the European Commission was in Dublin yesterday where Ursula von der Leyen addressed members of the Oireachtas. This is a country of proud Europeans and today all other Europeans look up to Ireland because you show Europe's best face. Innovative and inclusive. Loyal to your history and traditions. Open to the future and the world. Von der Leyen delighted politicians referencing the heroes of the Easter Rising and the architects of the Good Friday Agreement. This is the country that you have built, indeed, in one century of independence and half a century of European membership. Special mention was given to Jack Lynch, who, as Taoiseach 50 years ago, signed the treaty allowing Ireland's accession to the EEC, now the EU. It was the same treaty, of course, that 50 years ago saw the UK begin its membership of the European Union. One thing is absolutely clear. Brexit will not become an obstacle on the path of reconciliation in Ireland. Welcome words. President von der Leyen was firm in spelling out how this will pan out. The solutions we find must ensure that the single market continues to function in Ireland and elsewhere in the European Union. And I think if both sides are sensitive to this careful balance a workable solution is within reach. And those solutions, she pledged, will not result in a doomsday scenario destroying the 25-year peace process. And let me reassure you, Ireland can always count on the European Union to stand by the Good Friday Agreement. There can be no hard border on the island of Ireland. 
But it wasn't all about Brexit. Energy, war and Ireland's welcome for Ukrainian refugees were recognised to the troubles of 1973. Ireland's proud European record remaining optimistic in the Union. She described Ireland as a country of poets and artists. She spoke about the women of Ireland and Mary Robinson, our first woman president, and our evolution as a country of startups. Now, Vanderlein seemed proud to follow in the footsteps of John F. Kennedy in addressing politicians in Lancer House and how he quoted George Bernard Shaw. And I can promise you that whenever the European Union sits down with our British friends, we will do so with an honest heart and an open mind to quote the great Irish band, the Saw Doctors. That's Ursula von der Leyen on the N17. Let's speak uh, to Thomas Byrne, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD for me. These. Good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, President von der Leyen was speaking in Leinster House, obviously, yesterday. But uh, at times, would you agree, appeared to, to be addressing politicians across the pond in Westminster? Well, yes, I suppose any time the President of the uh, European Commission speaks publicly, she's going to be listened to, and particularly when she comes to Ireland and probably flew over uh, Britain to arrive here. Um, I think our words will be listened to very, very carefully. I think what, what you heard yesterday was very strong resolve, very strong commitment, firm um, on our principles and what we need, what, what has been agreed to by Britain. But also, as she said uh, in that quotation, an open heart, uh, friendly relations with Britain. You know, they, they've moved out of the home, but they're, they're still in the neighbourhood. Uh, that's the reality that we have. And I think that that, I hope, uh, would be welcomed in Britain and will lead to progression in the talks that are currently taking place at the moment. Okay, these uh, types of speeches in Leinster House, the opportunity for somebody who has not been elected to the Oireachtas, addressing the Oireachtas uh, is unusual in itself. Yesterday's occasion was to celebrate uh, the 50th uh, anniversary of Ireland joining with our European partners. Was there more to it than that though? That's basically it. I mean, the, the president of the commission, she has visited Ireland at least once before during this government last year uh, to announce the recovery and resilience funding for Ireland. And she's done that in every country. Um, but she wouldn't be to most countries more than once or twice. And I think she's been here maybe another time as well in, in the previous government while, while she was president as well. So I think it is important. I think it's significant as well that she's a very strong uh, working relationship with Tishuk Michal Martin, and that's really, really important. And she also will have the same with uh, Leo Varadkar uh, when he's Tishuk too. They worked very, very closely together on the pandemic, on vaccines. Um, I think we acknowledged that we wouldn't have had such a successful vaccine programme and such good outcomes from COVID overall uh, without the, you know, the joint work of the European Union that Ursula von der Leyen coordinated. But she was willing to acknowledge as well uh, our implementation of that uh, was first class in, in world terms as well. Um, and th- th- that was really important to us, that we benefited uh, from uh, the European initiatives, but I think the European Union benefited as well from having um, Irish people at the table too. Okay. Uh, the Brexit negotiations are obviously negotiations between uh, the European Union, which Ireland is a member of, but between the European Union and uh, the British government. Uh, and the stalemate over the Northern Ireland Protocol is a stalemate between uh, the two parties, the European Union and the British government. Uh, was uh, Ursula von der Leyen, as President of uh, the Commission, setting out her stall and Europe's stall uh, and which side she's lining up with? 
Well, I think Ursula von der Leyen is lining up with the European Union. She's president of the Commission, and that includes us. So, so that's very, very clear. Uh, but I think, like us as well, she wants this to be sorted out. She wants this to be done through a negotiated way. Uh, we don't want any trade war or problems with, with the relationship with Britain. We think that's where the British government, the, the space that they're in at the moment. She's had, I know, quite a number of conversations with Rishi Sunak. I know that James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, had a call with Maris Sepkovic as well this week. And all the while, technical experts are talking about how the protocol operates. And that work continues. Now, quite frankly, I'd love if it was happening a little bit more quickly. Mm. Uh, but I think it is, it is very positive that it is happening. Okay. And there are detailed talks taking place. And not much is coming out of those talks. I, I, I don't have a whole lot to brief you on. The, the member states get briefed uh, every week to an extent. Uh, but other than that, the talks are, are continuing mm. and there's political interaction as well to try and move the thing along as well. OK, but the President uh, didn't mention trade wars, as you've just said. No, Minister. no uh, but uh, her speech, uh, which clearly said Europe is standing four square behind Ireland uh, and we stand together, was on foot of an agreement reached between the Commission uh, and the European Parliament on Wednesday, which will allow for legislation in the new year, which will introduce such tariffs, if necessary. Uh, Retaliatory uh, response from Europe, as Maurice Sefcovic put it uh, the night before for Ursula von der Leyen's speech, uh, and spoke about Europe uniting against the UK. No, I mean, I think there's just a bit too much been read into that. I think what has happened here is actually part of our legal obligations under the under the withdrawal agreement and under the, the, the agreement in relation to, to Northern Ireland that there are measures in place uh, to deal with any breaches. We're required to put those measures in place. And this literally was the putting of the measures into place. It's not the actioning of the measures. It's not even the threat of the measures, but it's essential for uh, the agreement that they're there. And we have been up to now operating on a kind of an interim basis on this and now it's been changed to a full legal basis and that's simply all it is it's actually very very technical mm. um, but it has been read into I think a bit more than what it actually okay, is you have two, been... two opposing pieces of legislation the British legislation which uh, will allow the British government uh, to rip up uh, the Northern Protocol if that's what it decides to do, uh, and uh, this is uh, the counter-legislation, is it not? No, it's not. No, not at all. In fact, the legislation that the European side are putting through is, is actually from the trade agreement with Britain. It's, it's actually what's necessary to do to implement it. Uh, it's nothing to do or nothing like the, the Northern Ireland legislation whatsoever. And I know there was some reading into that, that this was part of an up in the ante. It is, it's absolutely not. Um, and the Commission will tell you that absolutely nothing to do with it. It's simply putting in place what should be in place with a, with a firm legal basis that hasn't been done already. And in fact, Britain would probably be doing something like this. You wouldn't even notice it because it would be so technical. But the, the Commission have announced this. That's, that's what's happened. But it is simply the putting in place uh, measures that are meant to be there as part of the agreements of Britain um, that have been operated on a kind of a technical basis up to now. It's, it's because the European legislative system is so complicated. So up to now, the European Commission had full charge of this, really. Um, but the member states um, are meant to have a say on it, and this legislation is literally giving the member states a say on it and putting that into a legal basis. So, so the, that's really all it is. It is really nothing more should be read into that than that. Right. Uh, the British economy is on a, a fine thread already. They're facing into the longest recession uh, in history. Uh, if um, this whole thing blows up on them, if they uh, don't come to an agreement with Europe, uh, do you believe uh, that there'll be in a, a bailout situation, a bankrupt situation? 
No, I think, look, I mean, the British government is there. Their, their priority is economic growth. I mean, they know that they're not going to get, whatever problems that they have mm. are not going to be improved by having a disagreement with the European Union. But that's what, the question. They, do, you, do you think they're starting to realise uh, that they have no option, that there is uh, an economic uh, gun to their heads at this stage? No, the, the, there's an economic imperative for any country to uh, have a good trading relationship with their nearest neighbours. And I think the British uh, know that. They, quite frankly, they would have a much better arrangement within the EU. But look, they made the decision to leave and the trading cooperation agreement that they've entered into and the withdrawal agreement provide the basis for reasonably good trade relationships, not perfect, uh, between the European Union and Britain. And I think that they will want to implement that to the full, and that includes the Northern Ireland Protocol, but for, for their own mm. sake, as much as anything else, as much as for the sake of peace in Northern Ireland or whatever, uh, they will have to do that. Um, so they realise that. They're, they're coming under economic pressure, as, as everybody is. Nobody's taking anything for granted. Or nobody's mm. looking over Britain saying, oh, look at you. We're all concerned about the economic picture. Yeah. Um, there's also pressure from the US as well, who want things tidied up, as it were, yeah. uh, before the Good Friday Agreement anniversary. And I think that's also or, positive. Or, or, or before and, they'll sign a trade deal with uh, Britain. Uh, and like whether you use the turn of phrase or not, there is an economic gun to... Uh, the head of a, a country that is already starting to sink uh, and is look, desperately looking for a, a, a way of stopping uh, going down into the sea. Uh, but it has this little problem with the DUP. Uh, and we heard Ursula von der Leyen there say that these negotiations are, are not going to threaten the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process will continue, uh, that uh, you would... Imagine that the principles of the Good Friday Agreement will be in place and that will that be part of the negotiation that uh, if Britain, when it finally succumbs and agrees to the Northern Ireland Protocol, that it will also agree that it can only happen, that there can only be an agreement if there is uh, share, uh, power sharing in Northern Ireland. Well, these issues are separate but related. So they're related in the sense that the DUP has said, well, we're pulling out unless you, you pull out of the protocol. Look, they're not going to pull out of the protocol. The protocol is agreed. Um, they have signed up to it. They've, they've always said, in fact, they're going to stick to it. Mm-hmm. The only question is the implementation of it, which is a very big question. Yeah. But that's, that's when that's solved, and I've no doubt that it will be, the DUP, first of all, will have no excuse because everything would have been done to assuage and address the genuine concerns that have been raised by all sections communities in Northern Ireland while maintaining the protocol. Yeah. Quite frankly, I think we, the Britain and Ireland should be able to look after those things at that point. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that when both governments... But we heard together, from the President of the European Commission that Europe has Ireland's back. Europe has the British on the run. Uh, will they not uh, make sure uh, that what okay. Ursula von der Leyen promised yesterday uh, will happen? Uh, and that the Good Friday uh, Agreement will be upheld, uh, and that uh, <laughs> its fundamental uh, achievement is power sharing, uh, uh, and that that will happen a- again, whether that requires some change of format or relationship or uh, whatever is involved, but that it will happen again, regardless of the position of the DUP. Look, the Good Friday Agreement is in place. The protocol sits on the Good Friday Agreement. It specifically recognises it. And the British government have, are absolutely committed to implementing the Good Friday Agreement. There's no issue there. And I'm absolutely convinced once, once these, this issue, which is effectively a side issue really at this stage, to power sharing, and once that's solved, the British government and the Irish government, I think I'm absolutely certain, will be able to come in and say, look, this is, this is what has to happen. You, you, you know, we, we've led the way, we've addressed the concerns, you have no option. And, people, and this has happened before. Mm. Now, I, I would just say one thing, Michael, just to counteract some of the things you just said there. 
in terms of language like Britain sinking, like Britain on the run, succumbing, it is not in Ireland's interest for any of those things to happen. We have so many business, trading, people links with Britain that it's very much, I think, in all of our interests that this has worked out. Yes, it is very much in Britain's interest that they don't do further damage to their economy uh, by having a good relationship with Britain. Mm. But it's very strongly in our interest as well, from economic, from people, and in relation to peace in Northern Ireland, that we have the best possible connection uh, with Britain. And it's very easy. And, you know, there are people out there who, you know, this, you know, I'm not accusing you of this, but anti-British and all this. But the reality is that they are neighbours. And we have so many connections that are vital to us. Our gas connection is literally mm. one of those connections. And that we have to wish them well and we have to work with them. I, I understand and that that's the diplomatic, uh, pragmatic language it's, it's, that it's is necessary. But it's it, it, reality for this country. Yeah, but it, it's also a, a state uh, that broke international law and put the state yes, peace and we, and we called that out and made it, made it clear mm, that it wasn't acceptable. Mm, yeah, but, uh, but now they're rowing back on that and I suppose that's what I meant. They've accepted, by our, they've accepted our position, which is the correct position. Mm, uh, okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a far wiser way to put it. Uh, but the Northern Ireland Protocol is not in the interest of anybody on this island if it prevents the restoration of the institutions in the north. Well, if you don't have the Northern Ireland Protocol, you don't have the free movement of goods on this island. You yeah. don't have you, you, you have checkpoints straight yeah. away. Checkpoints. Um, so that's not going to happen. And yeah. then when Ursula von der Leyen says that we're going to protect the peace process, that's effectively what she means. We're not going to allow that happen. Okay, But if power sharing has also, collapsed indefinitely, Minister, uh, you're back 25 years in time. Well, uh, in relation to the peace process, yes, but also in relation to our economy as well, because this European single market, which the protocol actually implements, mm. is absolutely critical to the Irish economy. So when you see Pfizer announcing 1.6 yeah. billion euro of investment yes, uh, yesterday, Fabulous. they wouldn't do that in any old island. But to stay with the point, Minister, and to use your language, now that the British have agreed with our position, uh, as I think you put it, uh, should they not also agree that it is imperative to restore power sharing, regardless of how that is done. If the DUP won't take their seats, well, let others take their seats or, or let uh, the executive be formed in a different way than the DeHaunt system. Well, I, I have no problem with the British government's approach to the, the Good Friday Agreement in terms of the, certainly their views that they've expressed is that they want power sharing. Now, power sharing in the North depends on uh, two communities coming together to share power because for decades one community had all the power. So it does depend on both coming forward uh, the DeHaan system is there, it's, it's tricky, it's difficult, it causes problems, but it's fundamentally there to make sure that everybody that has a significant vote gets a seat at the government table. And that's, that's really uh, what, what we've been really uh, have been trying to, had been trying to achieve for decades in Northern Ireland and was mm. achieved in the Good Friday Agreement. So now I, I keep coming back to my position that if the British government and the Irish government are firm enough on this, if we're speaking of the same hymn sheet, which we're not at the moment because of the protocol issues, because there's a negotiation going on. But if we are speaking uh, off the same hymn sheet, I'm absolutely convinced that the parties will come together and that the public in Northern Ireland will make the parties come together. And this has happened before. Okay. Uh, it was all sweetness and light, or at least to a large degree, it was all sweetness and to light. To a large degree. Yeah. Kisses and hugs uh, going back and forth, uh, <laughs> bows and courtesying uh, taking place, uh, it would seem, between uh, the President, uh, the three government parties, Labour and Sinn Féin. But there was very strong criticism from a, a number of uh, TDs, Michael Fitzmaurice, Michael McNamara, uh, there was Thomas Pringle, uh, Matty McGrath and Richard Boyd Barrett. Uh, what did you think of their contributions yesterday? 
Well, first of all, there was no bowing uh, among anybody. We are Democrats. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen has a position as President of the Council, uh, as Commission, and when she comes to Dublin, like any guest, you try to treat her as well as possible. And I think that's what most people have resolved it yesterday. I mean, look, I'm not going to pay too much attention to what some of the opposition TDs said, and I don't include them all by, by any means, but some of them, quite frankly, you couldn't understand what they were saying or what the point was. And oh, well, I thought them, they were very clear. Some of them hadn't done much preparation, came in and just spoke off the top of their yeah, heads, which is, I, think I find, surprised when, 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 when you have such an important house guest. I think in. they I mean, made some very pointed points, Minister. I, I didn't, I, I, we'll hear, we'll let people make their own judgment because we'll hear some can, of those yeah. criticisms later, uh, but uh, you heard it, that there was unprepared nonsense coming from the TDs. From, from, no, no, I didn't say from all of them. Yeah. I, from from mm. some of them, it was, it, was, it was somewhat incoherent. It was not fully prepared. Uh, and I think that we, when we have guests coming to our country, I think we need to put the best foot forward. I think that's what all the main parties did, as you've mentioned them, all did yesterday. And that's, that doesn't mean bowing to anybody. It means showing respect to a guest. It also shows that we're equals at the European table. Uh, and that's the reality. And that the Commission there, the European Commission, by the way, it doesn't decide on laws. The European Commission implements laws that member states of the European Parliament have put in place. So I would disagree with politicians criticise, well, sorry, they can criticise anything they like, and it is a democracy, but I think mm. it's the wrong target. I mean, if you want to change laws within the European system, you get elected to government in your own country, or you get elected to the European Parliament. They're the people that make the laws. The Commission okay. proposes laws uh, and implements them, and by and large, the European Commission, over the decades, has been a strong protector for the smaller countries, because they look at the overall European interest, not at the interest of one or two big member states, and that is actually what the Commission has done. And we've seen it here as well uh, with COVID, uh, with vaccination policy, uh, and indeed with, with Brexit. We've seen the Commission being a strong supporter of countries like Ireland. And Ireland and our economy, jobs, young people all benefit from that solidarity that we see in the European Union. And our European mem- membership has been so important to us economically, yep. uh, socially. Uh, that we need to recognise that. Okay. Uh, I think uh, that was recognised by some of those who did lay some criticism at the door of uh, the European Commission uh, yesterday, uh, namely Roisin Shortall. Uh, but we'll hear more of uh, those criticisms later in the programme. We'll leave it there for the moment, Minister, and thank you indeed for thank joining you. us on the programme today. Uh, that's Thomas Byrne, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East. 086 1800 658 The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now we'll stay with politics and we'll go to uh, the Shannon where the government was yes, asked yesterday if there's any plans to reopen Dunlear train station. At present there are no plans for the reopening of the station at Dunlear uh, or open a, a, a station at Drogheda North. Erin Rodairn has assured the Minister for Transport that they will engage with any parties proposing such projects and will ensure that no action is undertaken that could preclude any future reopening on the station. Well, that's Minister Malcolm Noonan who was responding uh, to Fine Gael Senator John John McGahan, who's on uh, the line. Clear enough response for you there, I think, uh, John McGahan? Uh, yeah, it was a very clear response from the Minister, and I wasn't going into that debate expecting him to say we're going to reopen it. Uh, I went into that debate trying to find out what the government and Irish Rail's view were on it. So, clear enough. But uh, a few other points that you did say from the debate, which I was heartened by, was that the, the Eastern and Midland Regional Spatial and Economic Strategy which focuses on the Dublin to Belfast economic corridor, uh, is very keen on targeted investment in transport infrastructure. So that was one good thing. The other three things were the actual three key tests that the minister said Irish Rail would have to apply for the concept of reopening Dunlear. One was 
that would have to fully align with the transport and planning policy. Number two was a robust business case uh, had to be in line with public spending code. And number three, a full demand assessment using the National Transport's regional modelling system. So they're mm. the three key tests yes. to decide whether... And the Minister also made it very clear, clear to you that it is not in the planning process. It's not part of the Loud County Council development plan. Yeah, and what's interesting enough about the development plan is um, it, it was put forward as a, it was put forward to be considered for the county development plan, and the NTA poured kind of cold water, uh, hot uh, cold water, on that to say, look, we yeah. have new plans to do this. But it actually was part of the county development plan between 2009 and 2014. Yeah, but it, it's so, not now, and you, you also know uh, and knew very well before the debate yesterday that the Department of Transport has commissioned an All Island Strategic Rail Review, which will look at all of these uh, possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And the rail review is a really good thing. And that was established to look at the untapped potential of rail infrastructure. Um, But it's looking at very, very high level stuff like high speed rail between Dublin and Belfast, high speed rail between uh, Dublin and Cork, for example. And what I actually said into the debate yesterday, you know, I welcome the rail strategy. But I also said I think the government should look at specific strategies for reutilizing smaller rail stations like Dunleer in large urban areas, like, mm. like, you know, like a town like that. So I think it actually needs a very specific, smaller, more detailed look about stations like Dunleer alongside the rail review strategy. OK, but the minister told you that's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen because it's not in Loud County Council's development plan. Uh, business case must be made, as you said, uh, and uh, then there should also be a transport sector specific common appraisal, uh, which would give guidance uh, on all of uh, this uh, but uh, you knew all of that before you went into the debate didn't you um, this is uh, gearing up for the next election looking for votes in Dunleer um, the next election is about two and a half to three years away so I don't think it's about that really what it is about is two things uh, I'm a very active rail user myself I love trains I get trains regularly yeah. I'm also the climate action spokesperson so I think any attempt to try and get people out of cars and back onto rail or public transport is a good thing so you quite rightly said there what, what's next I suppose or where do we go from yesterday's debate so I spoke to the minister's office yesterday uh, and they've agreed to facilitate a meeting with Irish Rail because I want to know exactly how far away we actually are from the three tests of the set out I, I would think on test number one we're pretty close but I, I don't know and I want to know um what the business case requirements are. I want to know how the regional modelling system works. I want to know how that would work in concept of a, a large town like Dunleer. So mm. I think that's where we have to go next. So they've clearly outlined what we need to do. They've clearly outlined where we need to go. We have to have the ambition to do that. So now what I have to do, let's kind of like a scale of one to 10. We yeah. need to see, based on what their assessment is, how close we are to actually getting this. Because okay. Would you not be I, better joining Sinn Féin? They'll reopen the station in Dunleer, will they not? I mean, if you're looking to get elected, uh, possibly that would be a better route. Uh, I'm pretty good with Finnegale, Michael. Pretty happy with Finnegale. Mm. But uh, actually, the, the other thing about it is when you look at the whole. Okay, area, but pe- like, pe- people who want the station reopened in Dunleer will probably continue to do what they have been doing, which is to vote for Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, no, look, it's not about personalities. It's not about who votes for what, right? This is about providing greater public transport uh, options for people, particularly in rural Ireland. And that goes back to the. I think the four key reasons as to why we should look at this. The first reason for me is it's 39 kilometres exactly between Dundalk train station and Drodis train station, so there's a large catchment area. The second thing is actually the population of County Louth. Like the last census, there's 10,000 more people living in County Louth. That's an increase of 8%. Mm. If you look at RD and Dundalk particularly... But but all of that is irrelevant until the first step in the three-step process is taken, which is that it gets included in Louth County Council's development plan. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the next development plan will start in 2027. So I totally accept that. You know, it's not going to be included in the development plan between now and 2027. So you're talking about 2037, possibly at the earliest, uh, if there's to be a train station reopened in Dunleer. I, I actually think, though, like that there's so much... It's hard to put a time frame on it, but I really do believe that the, the reopening of a train station in Dunleer is inevitable. Uh, but let me just tell you why... We're under a Fine Gael government, though. It'd be 2037, wouldn't it? No, but... You were talking about a 10-year delay. Uh, if it's going to take uh, up to 2027 before it gets into the county development plan, which, you know, is abstract... Uh, to a lot of people. You're talking about 10 years after that before. Well, county development plans last every five years. Um, so the I know, but before, plan, but, but before the train station is realised, once it goes into the development plan, you're talking about 10 years after that, before there's a train stopping and taking people o- o- off uh, to... Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, this whole concept of public transport, greater connectivity, the whole thing is moving so, so fast. So if you get it included in the county development plan in 2027, it's very difficult. It could be within five years, it could be within three, or it could be within 10. But the main thing is trying to get it into that development plan. And the reason is why I'm kind of confident about this happening is because there is such a public shift mm. uh, and a greater public desire for public transport and a stronger focus, government but, focus. But you were front and centre as, well. as a councillor in drawing up the last development plan, were you not? Uh, no, I wasn't. I came off the council in 2000. Oh, before, before, before the yeah. bigger part. I, I was involved at the very brief starting, but I wasn't involved in any of the debates or anything like okay, that. Okay, okay. Um, but the thing about it is there's so much happening in this rail line between Dublin and Belfast. Um, it's all about shifting towards greater public transport, greater tech connectivity. That view isn't going to change. That's not going to go backwards. It's only going to increase the desire for it. So that's why I think there's a really good uh, opportunity for this to open. But look, it goes back to the basics, as you said. We need to know exactly where we score with the department's three tests. I think that's where we go next. And once we get a solid grounding as to where the department view us, then we know what the next steps are and how okay. we go from there. All right, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us uh, this morning. Fine Gael Senator John McGahan. Call Michael now. 041 983 2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity. Legislation will curb advertising of gambling and alcohol should be treated in a similar way, according to Alcohol Action Ireland. Its CEO is Dr Sheila Gilhaney, who's on the line. Good morning, Sheila. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You're concerned about the way people are targeted through advertising, is it? Absolutely, Michael, and thanks very much for having me on. Um, You know, we have legislation in Ireland which would greatly restrict the level of alcohol marketing that children in particular uh, are being exposed to. But that legislation, uh, which would allow for uh, a broadcast watershed on on alcohol advertisements, has not yet been implemented, even though we're more than four years since it it was passed. And, um, you know, I kind of look at this and think, why why is there such a delay? And um, we've just actually had a gambling regulation bill, which uh, will also put in a similar thing for um, gambling restrictions on alcohol advertising and very tight controls around the licensing of gambling and indeed extending that um, ban on, on advertising right through to uh, to the internet, something that we would say really should happen with alcohol as well. Mm. So we really welcome the you know that, that uh, initiative with gambling. We really welcome the fact that um, you know they have 
put together a bill with a central um, agency, you know, a regulator that looks at both the the, um, the, the licensing and also the regulation of um, of advertising and puts a levy on the gambling industry as well to go towards, um, you know, paying for the cost of treatment and for research and uh, for education in, in this, this area. There may be All more questions, though, uh, than there are answers uh, about how you prevent advertising of any sort on the internet. Um, you know, it has been done in other countries. It, it certainly is there, and there are definitely ways of uh, that, it, that it can be done. I'm very interested to see, you know, that that, that approach is being taken with with gambling also. So, you know, there are technical ways in which this this can be done. You know, we have seen restrictions on other products, for example, on on tobacco and and cigarettes. So, it, it's not beyond uh, the, the you know the, the wit of any uh, legislation to to really tackle this. But more, I would be saying, given that we already have legislation in place, at least for the broadcast uh, watershed Mm. why aren't we just simply implementing that okay well would it not just be shifting the business the advertising from uh, mainstream media outlets uh, to uh, those that are 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 not as obvious uh, on the internet and otherwise well you know we would look at the fact that you know what children are, are seeing at the moment right now you know children um, they're the number four advertiser in their lives on TV is Diageo and I think we would just be questioning why is that the case okay uh, do you cringe when you see the very Christmassy ads uh, that a lot of the beer companies put up I simply cringe at the fact that um, another element of the, the bill that, that has, or the, or the Public Health Alcohol Act that hasn't been implemented is controls on the content of um, uh, advertisements, which would indeed strip out exactly what you're talking about there, you know, this myth-making that goes around alcohol. So, you know, when those restrictions would come into place, they would strip all of that out and you would simply have a factual ad saying, you know, the name of the product, where you can buy it, the price of it, things like that, as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, this association with, you know, things that are very meaningful to people, be that sport, music or indeed festivities like, like Christmas. Yeah, celebration. A lot of people would associate uh, a few drinks with uh, celebrating Christmas and other occasions. They, they certainly do, and they do that because the industry very much associates it for them. And, you know, and none of us are immune to that type of marketing. You get so that that becomes the norm. But, you know, it, it really doesn't have to be the norm. And when really what we're saying is we have a set of tools mm. through that, that legislation. We just need to go ahead and actually implement them. Imp- implement them. And I think what's lacking is, you know, a central focus in government to look at all aspects of, of alcohol, whether we're talking about licensing or whether we're talking about advertisement or whether we're talking about treatment. Mm. Right now, all of those things are kind of spread across a number of different departments. And I think okay. there's a real need for a central um, office to take control of all of those, those aspects. But, but leave aside underage drinking or problem drinking, uh, would it not be abnormal for most people to think about Christmas or other uh, occasions of joy without having a few drinks in? I, I think, you know, that that just really speaks to, you know, how the industry have captured our, our view of what is normal. You know, alcohol is not a normal product. It's not the same as, you know, buying a litre of milk. It's not the same as, um, you know, an, any other, other substance. And in fact, actually, if you look at, if you think about psychoactive substances in general, okay. every other one is controlled in some kind of way. And okay, well, I, I apologize, you, Sheila, that most people listening to us now uh, are, are Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Not problem drinkers, and I would be very surprised if there's anybody underage, any minors listening to us at all, let alone underage drinkers. But I'd say most people listening to us now are planning uh, to ha- to get drink in, whether it's for themselves or, or their guests, and they will uh, expect uh, and anticipate that as normal, uh, drink will be part of the festivities. I understand, of course, that people will, you know, and they're totally free to make their choices about that. What we're saying is, is that, you know, those choices at the moment are not really being made freely because they're being massively influenced by the level of alcohol marketing that, that they're seeing. Okay. Uh, we'll let people respond if they wish, but thank you indeed uh, for sharing those thoughts with us. As always, much appreciated. That's uh, Dr. Sheila Gilhini, who's uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. About uh, the dangerous breeds and why anybody would want to have them as a pet, this is uh, the 10 listed dangerous breeds. The American Pit Bull, the English Pit Bull or Bull Terrier, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, the Bull Mastiff, Doberman, Rottweiler, German Shepherd, Rhodesian Ridgeback, Akita, Japanese Toza and a band dog, which is a type of crossbreed. If you have one of these dogs and you're allowed to have this dog live with you, well, then it should be muzzled and on a lead when it's outdoors. Uh, the lead must be strong and it must be short and it should be no more than two metres long. The dog must wear a dog collar and your information, your contact information must be on that collar. The dog must be licensed and must be microchipped and only adults over the age of 18 are allowed to own a restricted breed and only people over the age of 16 are allowed to walk them. But why would anybody want one of these dangerous animals as a pet? That's not a question I'm asking. That's a question the Taoiseach asked the other day. All of thoughts of his, um, Alejandro uh, and, and his family uh, and friends following what has been a, a horrific ordeal for that young child. Um, it's, it's quite shocking. And I think all of us are very disturbed by what has transpired here and, and a degree of anger as well. You know? um, I don't understand why there's a need to own such breeds, such dangerous breeds. I think we should go back to the drawing board. Um, I don't have the full panoply of legislation that's in front of us, but I do think we need to go back to the drawing board. Because what has happened is one child too many now. Um, and we all have pets. Um, there's no need for this, in my, in my view. And it needs to be seriously examined. Um, and I revert to the minister um, 
Uh, thank you very much. Whatever cross-departmental approach we can take, we should take. First thing is enforcement, and to make sure there's enforcement. The second issue is the whole area of what, what's driving this and why the necessity for it. Thank you. Time is up, Deputy. That's Taoiseach Michal Martin. And what is clear reading the Irish Independent today is that the horrible and very serious condition that nine-year-old Alejandro has been left in should not be the situation at all because all of these dogs, whilst they're dangerous dogs and are allowed under the circumstances I read out earlier, they're all banned from the old Forge Road estate in Enniscorty. Uh, the housing body there says tenants are strictly prohibited from keeping these dogs dogs that could be considered dangerous to themselves or to their neighbours. They also say they enforce uh, zero tolerance to this and they say that all of this is covered in the pre-tenancy process. Now that's not unusual as I'm sure some people listening to us uh, this morning know. Let's speak to independent councillor Nick Killian in Mead and Finnegale councillor in Mead, Gerry O'Connor and a, a very good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Gerry, this is a, a very contentious issue. You'll always hear from people who say they're not bad dogs, they're bad owners. Uh, but do people need, or why is there a need if they they want to have uh, these dangerous breeds uh, as pets? Uh, as uh, the Taoiseach question there, it seems as though this uh, uh, position may be ending soon. Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it was a horrible, horrible uh, attack on poor Alessandro uh, Nixon. Uh, reality is, uh, why, do, why do people have these pets? I, mean, I know people who have had bulldogs and have had different pets, and they are pets and they're treated right, and they're trained right. And they follow the, the, the instructions as per putting them on muzzles, on them, and the leads, and all the usual stuff. Uh, and statistically, the most dog bites in Ireland happen by, from the likes of Jack Russell's and small dogs like that rather than big dogs. But when a big dog, a big powerful dog, like a pit bull, mm. uh, obviously it's going to be m- m- more serious. And lots of jaws. Yeah, yeah. We need to look back at it. Uh, I mean, you have to take a baseball bat to get the dog mm. off the poor child. Uh, I think we have to look at the way we're doing things. I think uh, there's education that plays a big part of it. I mean, I know since 20, 2007, Educate Together National Schools, they, they introduced animal welfare behaviour into the curriculum. I think we look, you need to look at other, other models of how, you know, like Switzerland, for example. Uh, we put signs up telling people what they have to do. And my colleague, Alan Tobin, got in trouble a few years ago because people took exception to it. Um, but in, in, in Switzerland, they have something akin to a driving license for dogs. Mm. And as a result, they enjoy an annual dog bite instance rate, which is a fraction. It's, it's 180 yeah. bites in 100,000. Yeah. In, in Sweden, they actually put penalties for people to fail to comply with basic welfare rules. Mm. You know, if you lose your dog uh, once, it's a week's wages, twice it's a month's wages, and three strikes, and he's out. And lo- lo- lose your license and uh, be prohibited from owning one of these dogs. Exactly, but I mean, we had a case there uh, not so far, long ago, where a dog, uh, Jack Russell, uh, uh, battered, a man battered his Jack Russell to death, slamming him 30 times off the ground in the public park in full daylight. Mm. He went to court, and the judge says uh, he was free to continue to own dogs as, as the judge felt it wouldn't be fair to deprive the kids of a dog. Now, when you have that kind of thing, something's gone wrong. Yeah. You also look at the, the puppy farm situation, and you look too. So we, we, we're the, the fighting dogs. The, you know, the, the, we breed dogs for fighting in some cases. Mm. 
And we're the capital of that because our legislation is so loose. And that's why puppy farms are, are, are thriving. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's all about education. I mean, okay. There are yeah. really good, good dog owners and then there are owners who don't. I mean, this, this incident down in, 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 in uh, Enniscorthy, there was two other dogs. One dog, the dog was, that did it was put down. But two other dogs were lifted. So that person who's, who's he's currently in, 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 under, under guard mm-hmm. investigation, he had three of these dogs. Yeah, they're not pets. Nick Killian, do you think that people should be able to keep these dogs uh, as pets, these uh, dangerous breeds? Uh, uh, and isn't it the case uh, that the council bans social housing tenants from having them? Um, I'm not so sure about the uh, about social housing tenants not having dogs. No, the, um, the, the, to, the dangerous breeds, the ten oh, dangerous. The dangerous breeds. I'd have to look up the actual rules and regulations on that because you, you just trigger their... Um, uh, that is a question in my mind. Um, I don't know why people would want to have these dogs anyhow, and I'm speaking personally when I say that. I, I, I don't like uh, pit bulls or um, mastiffs or any of that t- type of breed of dog, and I don't know as in particular why people would want to have them. But I, I notice in Northern Ireland um, that these dogs are actually banned, where here in Ireland is they're just restricted. So there's a subtle difference there. Um, the one thing, and I suppose listen to what the Taoiseach said the other day about bringing in rules and regulations, that's fine. Um, but that has to be uh, enforced and it has to be monitored. Like, for example, at the moment, um, Mead County Council has two dog wardens and they're covering the entire county of Meath, which is just not enough. So if uh, government want to do something on this, they're going to have to um, put funding in place and they're going to have to give all the local authorities around the country additional personnel because one dog warden uh, in an area cannot just do monitor all of these. I see uh, in, in Rathotas, particularly since COVID, the amount of people out walking mm. dogs. And I see... Uh, German Shepherds in particular, they never seem to be muzzled. Mm. So that has to be yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at Meath County Council. It seems uh, as though uh, perhaps you are allowed the 10 breeds, but you must follow the guidelines that I read out earlier about uh, being over 18, on a lead, muzzled yeah. uh, and so on, uh, and that they can't be roaming around chasing cars, people, sheep, worrying, damage to neighbours' gardens and so on. And they say that owners of greyhounds may walk no more than four greyhounds at one time. Well, greyhounds. Uh, well, uh, my personal experience of greyhounds is that they're they're not. They're certainly uh, a big difference between a greyhound and a pit bull terrier. Yeah. Um, mm. But I mean, look, greyhounds is a, is an industry, and it's uh, something. It's a into sport as well and there's many people will walk their greyhounds uh, day in day out but they take very good care of them some of these dogs. some of these dogs are very popular with drug dealers aren't they um i'm sure they probably are um i don't know too many drug dealers uh, michael but uh, i'm sure they possibly could be or there could be some sort of defense mechanism for them i, I just do not understand why people want these dogs, uh, and particularly this type of breeding and kind of extra breeding or inbreeding with some of these dogs that makes them. Well, even you can fiercer. imagine why drug dealers would want them. Well, I can imagine, <laughs> yes, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, there's a certain amount of them, and they can play with them themselves if they want to. But from the perspective of the general public, which is what I suppose we as public representatives have to think about, is 
enforcement, mm. monitoring of dogs, and the amount of dogs that are, I, I, like every evening yeah. I see in Rotorua, particularly in the summer evening, you see the amount of people out walking their dogs. So, you know, and 99% of them are grand and people behave, and but there's okay. always that 1%. Would you, ban, where, would, you ban these, would you ban these breeds? Absolutely. From- uh, yeah, Jerry O'Connor, that's, personal, that's a personal. That's a personal opinion. But uh, well, as a councillor, as a, a councillor, if there was a motion in front of the council to ban the breeds from the, it. okay, yes, I Ger- would support it. Jerry yes. O'Connor. Uh, yes, I, I would support that. Uh, but just, just bear in mind too, there is, you know, in the background, there's a we're the fighting capital, fighting dog capital of Europe, and what they need for for that thriving sector is good regular supply of hyper reactive hyper-aggressive, poorly socialised fighting breeds. And that's what the problem is. And the, the fact you mentioned the drugs people, mm. these things, these, a lot of these dogs have been used from a security point of view, both a legitimate security point of view, but also from a personal security point of view for some of these uh, people who are doing stuff in, in the black economy. Uh, I, look, it's all down to education too. I mean, the truth is that dogs are very slow to bite. For the large part, they're very slow to bite. And you've got to look at why they're biting. Is it breathing? Is it social, uh, you know, mm. socialisation? Is it the right training of the dogs? And their owners, before things go wrong. Yeah, well, people, pe- very people will want dogs to be vicious so that they'll be good security dogs. Yeah, well, then, then they have to, if, if they have to then, you know, then they're not pets. Michael, to be honest. No, I know. I know. I know. I mean, that, I know that, that's the like point, it. is it not? You know, pe- people, are, people are breeding dangerous dogs to be dangerous. Yes, exactly. Mm. Because they need, they need dogs. Who and are, and I, there is the problem. And I know that people are contacting us saying, I have a Rottweiler, I have a German Shepherd, I grew up with uh, whatever, Pitbull, uh, and so on. Uh, and they're the type of dogs that you were talking about earlier on, Jerry O'Connor, and they are not the problem. But it comes down to this minority of people who are intentionally breeding dangerous yes. dogs to be dangerous. Yes, yes. And that's, that's the problem. Mm. Because, and, and then there's the fear factor. And then you've got to look at two of the circumstances... I mean, in Liverpool, for example, which which eighty one percent of any dog bites happen in the urban area. So if you've got it like like an authority where you have a housing estate, the dog owner has to take responsibility. You can't have these dogs walking off a lead not muzzled. Mm. If you if you take on responsibility and you like to breed for whatever reason, and then you're you've got to comply with the legislation. But sure, all dogs should be on a lead, and no dog yeah. should be destroying yeah. the footpath without the owner picking up after them. I mean, we have to get back to some very simple <laughs> yeah. basics Michael, before we... Tell me about it, Michael. I, I'm like Ben Hoare at night time with three dogs. I've got three leads on them. Yeah. And it's like being in a chariot. But the number of people <laughs> I see who don't have dogs on the lead is... And that's, you know, and it, it has gotten worse, as Nick said, uh, during COVID. And I don't mean worse. Yeah. There are more people walking dogs. Mm. And I believe now that, that, that the, the, there's a huge issue where people are handing in dogs and the, the, the dogs trust and what have you can't, can't uh, deal with the, the number because you're all very well getting a nice pet when, when COVID and we were in lockdown. Mm. But now when people are back to work, there's a problem. Yeah, you have uh, to walk them. But I mean, you know, that's... that's, that's you have to find too. the time to walk them, probably more to the point. Nick Killian, do you like that idea of licensing owners? Absolutely, Yes. Mm. Um, I think in you know we have to expand, um, and I hope what the teacher say, says will happen that there'll be a review of all of, uh, all of this, and if it means uh, licensing dog owners, so be it. Um, 
uh, owners have to be responsible and, and like it's like the dog poo uh, from my office at times I see people just letting the dog run along the, along the road and do their business and they the person that owns the dog will just walk past. Uh, my office is in a little small shopping area and the amount of dog poo that I do have to pick up and sweep up um, every, 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 not every day, but at least once a week I have to do it. So you know, people are just, people can be just so irresponsible and not want to know. And if you challenge them, then you're the worst of the world. So, you know, again, I go back to the 99% of people who mm. do what what's right and there's always that 1% who take joy in doing what's wrong. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, it'll be some time before this conversation ends, but thanks uh, for talking to us uh, this morning. Independent Councillor Nick Killian and uh, colleague on Meath County Council, Fine Gael's Gerry O'Connor. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. The EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was in uh, Dublin yesterday addressing uh, the Oireachtas. Earlier we heard from Minister Thomas Byrne who said it wasn't all sweetness and light although there was an awful lot of good to be said. Uh, about uh, what uh, the President of the Commission had to say to the Oireachtas and how she was received. He was also concerned about some of uh, the criticism that was meted out to her. He said much of it didn't make much sense to him and he thought that some of the speakers seemed ill-prepared to him. We'll hear some of that criticism now, beginning with Richard Boyd Barrett. We are suffering, that made by Deputy Shorthall, we are suffering an absolutely devastating housing and homelessness crisis in this country. Uh, It is shameful what is going on. The number of people in emergency accommodation suffering hardship as a result of this housing crisis. And while so much of the responsibility lies with successive governments failing to address it, a very, very large component of the responsibility lies with the decisions of the EU Commission and the ECB as part of the Troika to ram billions worth of austerity down the throats of the people of this country uh, which have precisely left us with this legacy of an utterly, utterly devastating housing crisis. And I think it is long beyond time that the European Union acknowledged their mistakes uh, in imposing that austerity and the devastating consequences it has had. We might hear more from Richard Boyd Barrett later, but as he, he said, he was picking up on the points made by Roisin Shortall of uh, the Social Democrats about how the collapse of the Irish banks was handled and the bailout ensued. It hasn't all been positive. Being forced to bail out the bondholders during one of our lowest ebbs is a case in point. The increased militarisation of Fortress Europe and its consequences for desperate migrants, thousands of whom have died trying to reach our shores, must be regarded as shameful. And of course the bloc's fiscal policy must also come under the microscope. The goal of the Stability and Growth Pact is to maintain fiscal stability within the Union. But the pact's suspension to allow member states provide unprecedented support throughout the COVID crisis was a tacit acceptance of its limitations. This welcome suspension is also surely evidence of the need for increased flexibility 
on a more permanent basis, President. Some of those points made by Roisin Shorthall were echoed by independent Matty McGrath. And we have issues of concerns about demilitarisation. We have concerns about the huge privatisation. I, I certainly have concerns that many people have with the way we handle the COVID. And in fact, that you were, you were discussing COVID passports in 2012 and 13 and 14, long before COVID reached our shores. And I'm concerned that the way that big families have been indemnified and the way that they, they were favoured and got favouritism and the way people were locked down and imprisoned and the fear that was created. And the narrative couldn't be questioned by anybody in any country. And goodness, we see that today in China and elsewhere. So I have those concerns uh, and I want to expose them here to you today. As I said, nation states like ours seem to have handed over our sovereignty to the EU. Uh, the erosion of our sovereignty is greatly concerning to the citizens of Ireland. This loss of sovereignty is the reason that, uh, is the reason that um, our fishing industry has been unceremoniously wiped out, sold out by our own government. The latest scandal announces that a third of our fishermen are being forced to decommission their boats permanently. And indeed, that fishing... Criticism uh, was echoed by another independent, Thomas Pringle. As a representative of a, of a fishing community in, in, in Ireland, I think it is a, a sad commemoration because that was the start of the decline of our fishing, community, fishing communities. And, it, and with a combination of government, government incompetence and the European Union that actually decided and took advantage of that, we have seen the, the decline of the fishing right across the board. And I would also like to... Uh, express confidence and solidarity with the members who have expressed the, the, need, the responsibility about the housing crisis that we experience here and, the, and in this country and the EU has a sad role in, reflection, in relation to that as well. It has been aptly aided by our government and this country too. And in 1972 Ireland was also a proud, neutral, unaligned country. And I note that you have said that, the, that Europe was once a peace project, and I think that was probably as telling, saying that it was once a peace project. Because again, with a willing government, the EU will get rid of our, our neutrality, and that's not something that we should regret in this country, and that is something that we, every political member should oppose to ensure that we have maintained what has been a proud tradition, and a tradition that we should all be very proud of, and that will send a message to Europe that, and to the world that neutrality is the way to move forward. And we'll hear more about neutrality and war in a moment, but let's go to another independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, and some concerns about Europe's impact on rural Ireland. I, I listened to your speech about freedom. Every time we ask a question of any government in here, they, talk, they tell us that they have to ask the EU, whether it's VAT, whether it's tax, no matter what it is, environmental law, whatever, we have to go back and ask the EU, uh, can we do this? They seem to be our masters. So then you don't have your freedom and you don't have your own nationality, unfortunately, if that's the situation. You talked about heritage and tradition. EU law at the moment is taking a lot of heritage and tradition away from the people of this country. Unfortunately, and I know there was benefits of the old EEC, I would never deny that, but unfortunately, if you look at the likes of CAP, the budget has gone lower. And I would push it to you, madam, that with the policy that's being pursued at the moment by the EU, under the Green Agenda and under the food policy, there's a... a, a and a country like Ireland will end up 
and indeed the EU will end up that we will have food shortages within the next seven to ten years with the agenda that's being pushed thank, thank you, on the agricultural sure, sector. Much about war as mentioned, but much about war and peace from independent Michael McNamara. It is easy to fan the flames of war. It is easy to engage in jingoism. But wars very rarely end in unconditional surrender. Instead, they are brought to an end by people who engage in painful and painstaking negotiation with people and forces with whom we profoundly disagree because we believe in the greater goal of peace. I would ask that the European Union be a force for peace in the world as it was founded to be. Let's end this how we started uh, by going back uh, to Richard Boyd Barrett. We'll stay with the subject of war a war that we're all too familiar with now uh, that has resulted because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. This week, you have, and I support you in this, called for a tribunal to be established to investigate the undoubted, to my mind, undoubted war crimes of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. Uh, And I think we all share in condemning the utterly barbaric, uh, murderous uh, invasion by Russia of uh, Ukraine and support the people of Ukraine in their struggle for self-determination. But I really have to say, on the week when it is the International Day of Solidarity with the people of Palestine, for you not to simultaneously call for an investigation into the ongoing war crimes and crimes against humanity being committed by the apartheid state of Israel against the Palestinian people I really have to wonder about the consistency of the ethics of EU foreign policy. It is utterly, utterly unconscionable that we can say on the one hand, we must and we must investigate the war crimes and atrocities of Vladimir Putin and remain silent, as you did when you spoke in June in Israel beside the Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, and did not say a word, not a word, after we've had two devastating reports by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, of 70 years of ongoing crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, the siege of Gaza, a 15-year-long criminal action. Uh, Do we talk about investigating the war crimes of Israel? No. Do we sanction Israel for these crimes as we've sanctioned Russia? No. Instead, we continue to give them favoured trade status, import huge amounts of gas from Israel, deepen the relations and uh, engage in considerable uh, military and defence trade with the state that is doing this uh, to the Palestinians. That's just some of uh, the statements uh, that were made in uh, the Dáil Chamber yesterday to the President of uh, the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, that you may or may not have heard previously. But there is one thing that is absolutely correct. The Minister was 100% right when he, he said earlier this morning, it wasn't all sweetness and light. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with Airgrid. 
managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Now we're midway through the United Nations 16 Days Against Violence campaign. It's a campaign that started globally going back to 1991. For years we used to call it 16 Days Against Violence Against Women. Now it's 16 Days of Activism against gender-based violence. Let's speak uh, to Katrina Bentley, who's the CEO of Men's Aid. And a very good morning to you, Katrina, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. And there's certainly plenty of violence uh, against men. If your lines are anything to go by, you had over 7,500 contacts last year. That's right. Good morning, Michael. Uh, Correct. Um, Recently, in the last few weeks, we launched our annual report with Minister Helen McEntee in our head office in Navan just two weeks ago. Um, and sadly, and also I suppose on a positive note as well, it was an increase of 37% on the previous year, um, resulting in over 7,500 contacts. Um, and that will be, again, a much higher figure um, from 2022. Um, I suppose what, what, what we're trying to highlight, along with our, our colleagues um, across, it, it, I suppose this, it, we're part of the Drogheda response team um, through the local development officer there, Noreen. Um, and it's a group of 20 of us all coming together um, just to highlight um, the, the, the prevalence, I suppose, of abusive relationships and abuse in the family home. Mm. So um, we, we, is, we, we, is, don't, like, we just, don't like the figures, but it's no. it good that people are coming forward. For yeah, well, that's, that's it. Amazing. I mean, there's a glass yeah. half empty and a half full. Uh, exactly. There's probably no more violence than would have been before you saw these increases. The increases are as a result of people coming forward, and that in itself that's is it. a good thing. Unfortunate that they have to, but that is uh, yeah. the case. Is violence violence, would you say? Uh, does it, is it any different uh, if it's somebody being violent against a man than it is somebody being violent against a woman? No, I suppose I suppose we focus on the fact that everyone deserves the right and has the right to be safe um, and to be respected, and everyone deserves to be in a healthy relationship. So, regardless of the gender, for us, if the person is is not feeling safe, and um, whether male or female, um, is you know is irrelevant. So, for us, I suppose um, we've all worked with men and women and with children and families. Um, I suppose the service for men's aid is we are specific and, and we're niche in terms of supporting the men. I suppose of the 7,500 contacts, Michael, you're talking roughly the majority of that cohort would be 40 to 55 years of age. The majority of those men contacting us have children. So it's not just the, the, the person is, is the victim. There is impact on, on children and then grandparents and the wider family. And indeed, because of this, this community response, you know, the whole community and workplace as well is impacted. So mm. um, violence is violence, abuse is abuse. Um, and, and, and our focus is, is here to support nice. um, through the helpline, one-to-one counselling, court support, etc. Um, our peer group started again just recently in, la- in the last few months. Um, the men coming together, we've met 40 men in the, just in, in, since late summer um, coming in and supporting each other as well, sitting in a circle and, and just lending support. So it's a, it's a very worthwhile service um, and I suppose it gives pe- people a lot of hope as well. Mm. Uh, a lot of these men uh, are, are being abused by women then, are they, if uh, they're men yes. who have children? Yes. So, well, the, the majority of the cohort, the age group would be that 40 to 55 year age profile so the majority of them would have children um, so and of the seven and a half thousand roughly about 93-94% of them are disclosing a female abuser um, this, the latter 6% would be male on male or what, or what we call family violence so we saw during COVID um, perhaps L, you know, older um, adult children 
moving back in with mum and dad due to COVID, etc., and the pandemic, um, and family violence was was definitely on an increase. So I suppose. Um, and when you talk about violence, just to understand what mm-hmm. you mean, uh, you are talking about physical violence, are you? Uh, because abuse, Not always. well, yeah, abuse no, takes many yeah. forms, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think the majority, um, while, while there has been definitely in 2022 more physical violence reported, in 2021 it was coercive controlling behaviours. Mm. So what that would be is the emotional, psychological, financial um, in terms of gaslighting and sometimes, you know, um, withholding access to the children mm. and financial abuse as well. Men mm. reporting to us that they don't have control over their wallet. Uh, that she, she she gives him his pocket money, men calling us who don't have uh, credit in their phone, mm. um, um, and just living an absolute life of hell is how they you know yeah. how they describe it. Um, or, or, or possibly absolutely. like the listener who contacted us uh, recently and uh, is very much at uh, the forefront of, of my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. We're coming to the end of a, a program discussing violence against women, uh, and mm-hmm. a man called and said, "It's not just women. I sit in my yeah. car for endless hours of the day for fear of yeah. going home because of the." verbal yeah. abuse uh, I, I remember yeah. making contact with the man and passing on mm. your number and we'll give that right. number out uh, to people uh, in a, a few yeah. moments time but I mean that's mm-hmm. no life at all is it well just to mention as well you mentioned that gentleman the, the men come forward to us are between the ages of 18 and 88 right. because abuse abuse does not discriminate whatsoever um, and again I think if we're talking in a year's time Michael please God I think I'll probably be reporting an increase in the 60 year, age, 60 year old age group yeah. plus, I don't like calling them senior because my parents are you know are young yeah. but mm. um, that, that 60 plus is a senior age group and um, there's definitely a, an increase um, and, and the likes of what that man described, we hear that. Mm. We hear that every day. We dealt with 35 calls yesterday and eight one-to-ones um, right, just right. yesterday okay. alone. Mm. So, are, are, um, men, are men embarrassed to come forward? I, I remember talking about this uh, uh, on radio programmes back in, in the 1990s and uh, mm-hmm. people used to call in and say, uh, grow a pair and people were sniggering at the idea mm-hmm. of a man being overpowered by a woman and there's all, all uh, this uh, stereotypical yeah. uh, uh, expectation that men should be big and strong and be able to control yeah. their lives. Absolutely, yeah. The stigma and the shame, the fear, fear of being ridiculed, the fear of not being believed, um, the fear of the la- of, of people turning around and saying you're six foot four and she's five foot nothing. And the, gar- the, guards he'll, 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 to, the guards used to laugh at men. Well, we're very much working with them for the last mm. number of years. And I have to say, the community guard, across Loud and Drogheda are excellent um, yeah. with, in responding uh, to ourselves all, and working all, with us. All that's so there's, changing. There's, Attitudes there's changing. A huge, there's a real yeah. shift, yeah. I suppose, is, is the word I would say, in right. terms of the attitudes mm. and the education. Um, and yes, you know, when some of the men come forward, they may have hung, rang us a few times, Michael, and hung up. Katrina, can we give out your contacts before yeah. we run out of time? Yeah. Uh, there's a yeah. helpline. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 0155543811, 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- 0- or mensaid.ie. Everything is on our website. Okay, or email hello at mensaid.ie for that yeah. matter. Thank you, Katrina Bentley, Thanks, CEO Michael. of Mensaid. That's our programme for today and uh, for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme Monday morning, 9 a.m. LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. 086 1800 658.
LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. 